Good morning. Our scripture reading today is John 12, verses 1 through 8, and you can find that in your Pew Bible on page 845. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. This is God's word. Many of the stories in the Gospels are told more than once. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are bringing their vantage point to bear on, on Jesus and what he did and how he lived and who he was. And so, for example, Jesus' death and resurrection are told, as you would expect, in each of the four Gospels, the feeding of the 5,000 is told in each of the four Gospels. And a version of the story we just read shows up in Matthew and Mark. There's a different one in Luke that's actually a different occasion. But all that to say, when this is told in Matthew and Mark, there ends the story with a line from Jesus I want to read to you as we begin and pray. Jesus says, about this woman and her expensive act of devotion. He says, truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. In other words, Jesus says that wherever the good news goes, the good news of his life, his death, his resurrection, the promise of his second coming, people are also going to tell this story. I take that to mean that this story was really precious to Jesus. And he wants it to be precious to us. Let's pray as we study it together. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the many gospel truths we have, some of which we just sang, that we have a Father who loves us, a spirit who works among us and a Messiah who holds us. Thank you that you are worthy to bring about, as David said, and as Revelation 5 says, the fullness of your plan for redemption. In small ways but meaningful ways would this sermon and this service be part of that end. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Because the times and customs of the Bible 
often feel foreign to us, it can sometimes be helpful to take a Bible story and recast it into situations that are more familiar to us so that we can then understand that story better. So, for a moment, imagine with me. Imagine a father who loves his only daughter. And the wedding day of his only daughter is just around the corner. And he wants it to be so special on the very special day. The father's not necessarily wealthy, but he is a florist and he owns a florist shop, uh, flowers, and so flowers are pretty important to the wedding. The father talks it over with his wife and they agree. You'll always have customers, she says, but we won't always have our daughter. So they agree. He's going to empty his florist shop of, of every flower, roses and daffodils and sunflowers and carnations and daisies and hydrangeas and irises and azaleas and carnations and so on and so forth and all the flowers they personally grew that year and all the flowers they can stock in their store that year they're going to go to church on that big day and when the day arrives the guests can smell the flowers the moment they get out of their cars they smile at each other as they enter they smile at the father they know They've never seen such extravagance. Their eyes can hardly believe it. Their noses can hardly believe it. And during the most serious and sober moments of the ceremony, such as the vows and the exchange of the rings, there's a wedding guest in the back. And sorry to point here in the back, those of you in the back. But there's some guest in the back that crinkles paper and opens a can of beer rude to say the least, and then he mumbles not so quietly about how all these flowers are such a waste and how they could have been bought a gift that would actually last. Of course, later at the wedding reception, you find out that this rude man, he doesn't really care about the flowers of the wedding. There's other things going on. Now, that's not exactly what happens here in John 12, is it? It's not exactly what happens. But the splendor and the sacredness of a wedding ceremony, love and devotion and sacrifice, like juxtaposed with the rudeness of a guest, it, it does help me at least feel for a moment the odd mashup that is this story in John 12, extravagance and devotion and love and generosity on the one hand with rudeness and, and this self-serving greed on the other, could there be more differing responses to Jesus? And yet these contrasting responses to Jesus, they, they invite us, they invite you to consider what you think of Jesus. Jesus. What is the worth of Jesus? This question of worth, we're asking it all the time. If we buy a car, we want it to know it's worth what we pay, even more so with a home, right? A few of my children have recently come alive to sports cars, especially football cards, and it's got me down in the basement pulling up my old baseball cards, wondering if those Joe Montana cards are actually worth anything. I have no idea. Um, it seems like they should be worth something, but... I don't know. There's a store here I drive by all the time. 
I might go in and ask, but we, 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 we ask these questions of appraising value. We, we, we love home shows where they're, they're going to fix it up and will it you know, reach the value they were intending or even exceed what they were hoping to get out of it. Shows like Antiques Roadshow, right? Some of you have watched this and they, you wonder, is that piece of junk or that family heirloom really actually priceless or you know, what will the experts say? For the disciples who first read the Gospel of John, and for disciples like you and I, this question of the worth of Jesus is more personal than baseball cards, isn't it? As we've said often in this sermon series, that, that John has structured intentionally his, his gospel account of who Jesus is so that he could push us to see that, that who Jesus is and, and that John says in John chapter 20, verse 31, that in believing in him, we would have life in his name. Okay, great, right? But what happens after we start believing? Well, our sins are forgiven, so praise God for that, yes. And when we start believing, we're adopted into the family of God, meaning we have brothers and sisters who are like us, but different than us, but, but all under the banner of God's love, and so we have a family, praise God for that. But what happens when belief in Jesus starts to leave us, lead us into harder, more costly situations? What happens when it becomes expensive to believe in Jesus? Back in chapter 9 of John's gospel, we're now in 12, but back in chapter 9, Jesus heals a man and there's this conversation among the religious leaders that anyone who confesses Jesus as the Christ, they're going to be thrown out of the synagogue and that very thing happens to him. He's shunned, he's excluded from the religious society of which he was a part, which he grew up in. That hurt. History tells us that all of the disciples who were at this dinner party suffered greatly for their faith. Many were martyred. It can be expensive to believe in Jesus. Over the last two weeks, we've had several young people, I think I can call them all that, (laughs) compared to myself. They were young men and women who are trusting in Jesus, and they were baptized here in our church, right here on the stage, and to a packed congregation, and we all cheered when they came up out of the waters, but what happens next week or the week after when no one's cheering? And it gets harder to follow Jesus. What happens when our neighbors wonder why, in their words, we could be so intolerant and hateful to believe certain things that we believe about Jesus? I'll tell you a quick story. There was a man who attended our church for a number of years. This is now a few years ago, and he became a Christian while he was here. Praise God for that, right? But after several years of believing in Jesus and and being changed by Jesus, I think for the better and many others do as well, his wife was essentially asking him the question, like, you, you either have to choose me or Jesus. Because she didn't want to be married to a Christian. In these situations, we ask the question, is Jesus worth it? And it's not only in these dramatic situations, but also in the more mundane, just less intense ways. We might not say it out loud, but we wonder where it's, whether it's worth it to come to church on Sunday morning and go through all the hassle of coming here and parking and getting up and seeing people we don't know. And Is it worth the hassle to plant a church, to serve in the nursery, to drive vans around the city, to pick up people we don't know very well? All these questions can bubble up, and what I want to say is you're not wrong 
or even sinful to ask the question of the worth of Jesus, I would suspect that those reading this gospel for the first time were asking this question more than us. So we should ask the question, but then how do we answer the question? Now that's where it starts to matter. In this passage, John puts before us his audience. He, he wants to give us an answer. He wants us to know what is the worth of Jesus and why it all matters. So, as I've already hinted at, you see two very different views of Jesus emerge from the passage. So look with me again. I'm going to go back through it here. Just verses 1 and 2, we have what we might call the setup, the, the context for this story. Jesus has been traveling different places. We come to the Passover for the third time in the Gospel of John, three years or at least two and a half or something like that have transpired. And so John chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, we read this. Six days before the Passover... Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. They sat at tables differently than we do. They would kind of lean across the floor and lean at the table and the food would be there kind of at you know, knee or high th- height and that's how they would eat. If you haven't been here the last few weeks, this was the story we had been preaching through. In chapter 11, Mary Martha and Lazarus were precious to Jesus. He loved them, and when Lazarus died, Jesus raised him from the dead, and they want to throw a thank you party in honor of Jesus. And into this sober moment, this very serious celebration, we read of Mary and Martha's plan to honor Jesus. Look at verse 3. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from Pure nard, I won't go into how, I mean, everybody commentary talks about where you get this and it's from far away and it takes forever to get it and so on and so forth to make it. But so, And they anointed, or she anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Mary's gesture is expensive. It, it's over the top. It's intimate. Strange as it is to us, she used her clean hair to wash his dirty feet. And the smell was over the top. It, it, it filled the house. I remember back in the day when I worked in construction, um, I had one job we were working on, um, worked in fire protection, and we were doing a renovation at a Procter & Gamble factory there in St. Louis. And among the other things made there at the Procter & Gamble factory were um, lemon-scented dish detergent. And I remember talking with the employees there that, that, that they had, at least in part of the factory, like a concentration that was so concentrated, they just warned us, don't ever get this on you because if it gets on your shoe or gets on your clothes, you'll never get the smell off. Um, and it seemed like all the workers there had some version of a story where they got it on their shoe and then onto their car and their car always smelled like lemon or something like that. The giant vats of it there. In Jesus' day, because people didn't shower as often as we do, I would guess the smell lingered with Jesus until his death. 
It's an extraordinary story. Mary and Martha, they, they see Jesus as worthy of their highest praise. And this view leads to extravagant, generous actions. This, this high view of Jesus, I'll say, not only does it lead to these, this extravagant worship, it leads to this kind of, what I'll call a freedom, this, this freedom of self-forgetfulness. When you're astounded by Jesus, you're not also asking the questions, how am I coming across? Are people looking at me weird? What should I do to make everyone happy? There's a time to ask some of those questions in some ways, but there's also this freeing, beautiful aspect of worship that where those questions just disappear for a moment. And perhaps for some of you, that, that, that challenges you, that intrigues you. When you come to church, I mean, you'd love to blame it on the church, you'd love to blame it on the other people, but just let's be honest, like you're the one who's constantly aware of what are other people thinking and how am I coming across and what do I have to do to make all these other people happy? Am I dressed the right way? Do I say the right things? It's exhausting. Am I raising my hands? Do I have my hands sufficiently in my pockets as we sing? <laughs> do I say amen loud enough when the preacher preaches? None of you have to worry about that, except for maybe Philip. I appreciate you, Philip. <laughs> You'll sometimes say amen. But all these kinds of questions that just can plague us and constrain us and we don't feel free. And here, they just, you just feel like all those questions are gone. Jesus has something better for you. The, the experience of freedom that comes from worshiping him. And speaking of something better, there's... Mary, of course, but there's also Judas. In Judas, we see that when we view Jesus as merely useful to us, it leads to this kind of calculating, self-serving kind of loyalty. Not a loyalty to Jesus, but a loyalty to self. Rather than generosity, this low view of Jesus leads also to greed. Look at, look at verses 4 through 6. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii? And you look in the footnote, that's like a year's wages apparently. Why was this not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, John adds, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. The obvious contrast between Mary's high view of Jesus is, would be to say that Judas has a low view of Jesus, right? That would be the obvious contrast, and I think that's true. But I think we can say more. It wasn't simply that he had a low view of Jesus, but it was that he saw Jesus as merely useful until he didn't. Judas was treating Jesus as useful to him until he wasn't. The perception is that only wealthy people are greedy. But you can be very concerned about money and status and wealth, even when you have very little of it, as I presume Judas had. 
And that's where this calculating greed comes into play. When he sees all the flowers at the wedding and he starts calculating, if these flowers had been sold and not cut and brought over here to the sanctuary where they're just going to be thrown away, if, if I had been able to sell all those, put that in the money bag and skim off of an entire year's worth of wages, then think what I would have been able to do. And if he can't get money from Jesus in this way, then he'll go out and get money from Jesus another way, which is what comes here shortly, by selling Jesus to the religious leaders. And so yes, this view of Jesus is too low, but it's also that he sees Jesus as merely useful to him. And I think that, that useful idea of Jesus invites us to consider more uncomfortable questions, doesn't it? About how we view Jesus. I'll go first. <laughs> Perhaps I could ask myself something like, am I a pastor merely because that's what I went to school for and I've started this career path and it, I don't know, you're all staring at me. That feels great, maybe. <laughs> you pay me. Sometimes I joke, I'm a professional Christian. <laughs> right? All of you have to do it because you choose to. I get paid to, to do this. But why are you a Christian? You're a Christian because that's what your parents are? And it's easier to keep up appearances for now? Are you a Christian because fill in the blank? These are uncomfortable questions. Now, there are 10,000 good reasons to be a Christian. But when it becomes expensive to believe in Jesus, when it's no longer useful in merely earthly ways, when belief in Jesus no longer feels, I'll say therapeutic to you, it no longer makes me feel good, it no longer helps me feel better, it no longer helps me thrive in life, when actually believing in Jesus feels dangerous and costly, John wants you to know it's still worth it. Because he's worth it. So, how shall we end? We, we, we've talked about the different views of the worth of Jesus. There's Judas and there's Mary. Here, here's an interesting question I think we should end with. What, what is Jesus' view of his own worth? Maybe it's not as explicit, but I think it's there. I mean, what if Mary got it wrong? What if she overspent, so to speak? Wouldn't Jesus, who's the way, the truth, and the life, wouldn't he tell her the truth? If she had overspent, wouldn't you, I mean, you'd think Jesus would just interrupt. I said, Mary, 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 Mary. This is very nice, but just put the lid back on, like save it, spend it, give it to the poor. I'm not worthy. That's not what he did. He didn't say that because he knows Mary didn't overestimate his worth. You might overestimate the worth of a car or a house. You might overestimate the worth of a baseball card, but you can't overestimate the worth of Jesus. When Paul says in Romans 12 to Christians to offer their bodies as a living sacrifice, it's not too much. 
Look how Jesus speaks up here as this passage ends, verses 7 and 8. And Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. It's a little ambiguous what that means. Keep the memory of it. Keep the act of devotion. Keep, I, I think that the smell lingered and it was, I don't know, that it, it, it was all a part of this thing that was coming and moving towards his burial. I, regardless, he says, for the poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. Note that Jesus receives the worship. He doesn't rebuke her. In fact, he rebukes Judas for rebuking her. And think how wonderful that is. Think about what that communicates about Jesus and who he is. Here are these two women, maybe there were more, but at least these two, in a room with Jesus and a bunch of other men. And the two sisters, I think, they work together to plan this one event. One will serve, one will anoint. And then when it happens, through all the planning, all the thank you, all the honor, all the self-forgiveness, they're trying to pour it in, into Jesus. And, 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 and it, it's risky. And, but when they risk, she's shamed. And essentially told to go get in a corner and do better. And yet Jesus speaks up and says, no, you leave her alone. I love that. I love that Jesus loves everyone and is afraid of no one. You can't guilt Jesus into anything. You can't scare him down. And, of course, wonderfully, we also see that Jesus is the one who dies for sins. He's, he's the God who dies for his people. This, this Passover is coming and the burial is coming and it's all mingled together. He says, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. I mean, what other conversations are we missing here? Like we're piecing things together, what they knew and what we knew, but somehow it's all there on the page in this phrase, for my burial. And less than a week after this dinner party, on the next Saturday night, he will be in a tomb. That is until early Sunday morning. That's why we meet on Sunday, isn't it? To remind ourselves he was there, but he's not. We gather to remember that if we believe, even though you die, you will never die, to use Jesus' words from earlier in the gospel. That no one takes his life from him, but he lays it down and he takes it back up again. And he's worthy to open the scroll. So as we finish here, I go back to where I began. For the disciples who first read this gospel, and for disciples like you and I, maybe some of you are actually reading it for the first time, and for those of us who are familiar with it, and the grind of life and the cost of following Jesus might have stacked up in such a way that you need the reminder that it is worth it. You're not wrong for asking the question, what is the worth of Jesus? We just have to be careful how we answer. I'm going to pray and invite David and Jeff up. Uh, David's in the back. and They're going to spend a few minutes with us uh, talking about the way they um, together partnered this summer, but also David across 
his life partners with uh, the young adults uh, in our denomination all over the, and all over the world to train them up and, and share about Jesus. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, it's a fitting transition in some way to talk about missions and the cost of following you, but also the beauty of seeing you work. Through the service, through the preaching, through the passage, through the gathering together, would you remind us that you are indeed worth it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.